Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, as we do our scripture reading this morning, we're going to be in reading in verse 9, and we will read uh, through verse 24, through verse 24, verse 9 through 24 of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 24. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version, as is our custom. God's word declares, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Last week we looked at the manner in which God does his work. And what we discovered was that it wasn't always fun. It was sometimes very frustrating. It was sometimes uh, contentious. And yet, in the end, because God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, according to Romans 8, written by Paul, who is one of the key figures here in this text. We find that um, the work of God wasn't uh, thwarted, but actually uh, multiplied. Because the people of God were responsive. And I think that's an important factor that we need to include understanding that Barnabas and Paul recognized that neither one were going to change their minds. That both were adamant about their uh, position, not on an issue of theology, not on a significant thing like uh, along that line or a practice for the church, but rather about personal uh, opinions and um, recognized the need not to tear apart a church, not to take it to the assembly, um, but rather to recognize that this is a personal issue that needs to be dealt with personally, and the result is not less ministry, but more ministry. That their decision to agree to disagree um, over an, uh, what is really not a vital area of doctrine or practice um, was healthy for the church. And so we end up, instead of one missionary team going out, we end up with two missionary teams going out. We have Paul and Silas then, uh, we have Silas added, 
Uh, we have John Mark that is going to be reinvested in and is going to come out of that scenario profitable to both uh, the church and particularly to Paul, says so point blank later on. Um, we're going to have Silas brought in who is going to be a great minister with Paul. And he is probably one of the underappreciated characters, I think, in the Bible is the role of Silas in ministering alongside of Paul. And one thing is we, we always talk about Paul's missionary journeys, um, and I, I think that's really a misnomer. Um, I, I believe it's, it's the Spirit's missionary journeys through agents of Paul and Silas, and then they pick up a young man, Timothy, they're going to pick up Titus and others. And so we find that instead of the ministry contracting because of two men that couldn't get along, the ministry expanded because of their maturity in dealing with it. Not in a public fashion, but between the two of them. And they recognized the necessity to go out uh, in two distinct directions. We then find them frustrated, trying to go into ministry, trying to hear and trying there. And again and again, the Spirit, it says, uh, did not permit them, didn't allow them, kept confronting closed doors and the frustration of that when you're trying to get into these regions, recognizing the opportunities that may be there, but seeing God close the doors. We're not told how that occurred, what circumstances or or tools or mechanisms that the Spirit used to uh, not allow them into those areas of ministry, um, but they were the work of the Holy Spirit to redirect them. I think that's an important aspect we need to consider. We often talk about one of the Spirit's work is the, to provide direction, and that's not only where to go, but sometimes it's where not to go. And both of those are valuable. But because we tend to be kind of bullheaded and a little proud, imagine that, uh, we tend to just press on and push by. And we just see those uh, obstacles as something of the world rather than something of the Spirit may place there to uh, redirect us to where He wants us to minister and we need to have a willingness to recognize the distinction between those. Now, it's certain that there was opposition. We're going to see it before we get to the end of our passage. And that opposition is not the Spirit directing them. And so, how it was that they had tried to go into these places, uh, both in, the re in, in uh, Galatia, uh, they wanted to go up into Asia, they wanted to go into Bithynia, uh, again, again, the Holy Spirit prevented them. This was apparently not by means of, of opposition to the message. Um, that never seemed to slow John or Paul down or any of them down. Uh, it was something uh, that apparently was very obvious, was the Spirit working and not men working. And, uh, and so they responded. And finally... Um, they sit still, and God responds, and now we find the Macedonian call. And we find a lot of instruction on that. We have find a lot of material um, historically upon this call, upon Paul and Silas and Timothy um, and Luke now. Luke now joins because of the opportunity to stand still. Uh, gives one more person to add to our team. Um, have this vision. Paul has the vision. The calling is for all of them uh, to go across into Greece. This is the northern region of Greece. And uh, Paul's main concern has been really in Asia Minor, uh, which would be modern-day Turkey. And he was trying to press north, um, which would have taken him into, uh, let's see, what's north of, U of Turkey? Is that Ukraine and that area? And uh, so he would have taken him up and around the Caspian Sea region instead um, God directs him west. He says, that's where I want you to go. And, uh, of course, we cannot come to a passage like this without reiterating again and again, as we've already done in our singing this morning, um, verse 10, that when God finally gives you this kind of directive, that we immediately obey. 
That is the response of godly people. Is that when we hear a directive by God, through His Word or through His Spirit, that we do not hesitate to follow through. We do not hesitate to conform our will to that directive. That if God says that, I'm not going to mull it over. I'm not going to wonder at it. I'm not going to say, I wonder what that vision meant. Um, there, there's none of that, but rather there's an immediate response. This is what God wants. Therefore, this is what I shall do. And that needs to be the norm for the Christian community. Not, well, I'm going to think about that, Pastor. I'm going to consider that. And when you go through your Bible reading, I wonder if that's really what it means, the way I take that. Um, And generally, it is. If it demands something of you that you're not comfortable with, it probably does mean exactly that. Uh, And so I have people come to me, and they read 1 John, and they're like, does this really mean I'm not supposed to sin at all? I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it means. You're not supposed to sin at all. But when you do, and you will, take care of it right away. That is the evidence. That is the the principle by which we know that we are the children of God. We love Him and keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And we love His people. uh, and, And do not ever want to fail to meet with them and gather with them. All of those are the evidences of your sure salvation. So, of course, you want to participate in it. And usually, what they're hoping I'll say when they confront me with that kind of question is that I will um, somehow soften it. Somehow there's room for disobedience somewhere in there, and there just isn't. It really means what it says. And so that's not really the issue. Really, the issue is, are we willing to conform ourselves to what it says? And here the Spirit comes and gives Paul a vision because Paul has been knocking his head against the wrong walls. Um, And uh, by God's grace, God hasn't allowed him to pursue those very far. And so um, here he stops and the Spirit comes, gives him a vision. And the vision isn't of God or Jesus or anything like that. He has a vision of a Greek guy over in Macedonia who says, come over here and help us. You want to help all these other people, come over here and help us. And this is going to be critical. We're going to find out how critical this statement is when we get into the, uh, their arrival in, in Macedonia and why maybe um, Paul didn't consider it as a primary place to go. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for your word. And we pray that we might have the spirit within us of obedience, of submission that we want your will to be done in our lives and not our own, that we might conform ourselves to your truth, to your principles, to your directives, to your commands. And Lord, help us to have the, that desire and the wisdom to recognize that um, that direction comes both positively and negatively by declaring sin that we should avoid as well as commands to obey and directing us away from other places toward other places of ministry. Lord, help us to keep from becoming embittered because we think that the only things that should come from you are always on the positive side. We recognize that you need to override our stubbornness sometimes, our expectations to do your perfect work through us. Lord, again, we commit this time to you and we pray your Spirit's Uh, guardianship over it. That it might be a time of your truth, that it uh, might be recognized for its authority, and that uh, the very words might be uh, guarded from error, from opinion, from the philosophies of this world, that they might be from above as they come from your word. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come down to their obedience. They have headed out. They immediately uh, find their way to Macedonia. And uh, we are given a little bit of the how they did that in verse 11. Uh, typical Luke. Sailing from Troas, we ran straight course to Samothrace. And the next day came to Neapolis and from there went to Philippi. And what he's just given you is about the fastest, most direct course from where they are to the principal city of Macedonia. So Macedonia is a region, not a city. Uh, it's kind of like being called to New Mexico. Well, where in New Mexico am I going to minister? 
Um, and so you have some place somewhere around there. Um, and so he's asked or invited to come to Macedonia. He recognizes this is something that God has given him. He, he would not have created this. This isn't just, a, a, you know, ate too much pizza too late and had this weird vision. No, this is the work of God. And, and now he's responding. And they go straight to the principal city, the main city of Macedonia, which is Philippi. And from there, um, we find a little bit of, of Paul's methodology. He's going into principal cities and with an expectation that he can establish churches there and that they will reach that region around and about them. And we anticipate that this is probably exactly what the church of Antioch was doing. Remember, we talked about him visiting the other churches in Syria and Samaria uh, on his way down to Jerusalem, that these would have been the result of that church of Antioch's missionary efforts in its region. That they just uh, would have uh, created all these satellite churches and sent men out into them. And certainly, Paul likely had that kind of ministry uh, idea to be brought into Macedonia. And so he makes a beeline about as straight as you can, as fast as you can. And Luke's words make it very clear that they had that he had this this very focused idea. We're going to go directly to Philippi. Um, all other stops, we don't have a, a lot of uh, ministry activity. Doesn't mean that they didn't minister the word to those that we they came across on shipboard or traveling. Um, but their focus was to get to Philippi. They arrive in Philippi, the principal city of that region. Uh, it's called a colony. It had a, a very privileged position in the Roman Empire. Remember, we're still in the country of Greece, technically. Uh, Macedonia is northern Greece today. Uh, and so, and back then too. Um, and so the Roman Empire had encompassed that area. Uh, Philippi was one of the principal cities that was set up and uh, was given some authority in the region, and it was developing towards being one of the uh, strong Roman cities of all of Greece, uh, challenging uh, even Corinth and some of the others. And so uh, Philippi had some uh, high ideals uh, that they were going to be good Romans, uh, that they were, they were trying to accomplish something. They were trying to show Rome their loyalty. They were trying to demonstrate to Rome that this is a city you can count upon. Uh, we are Roman Romans, even though we aren't in Italy. Uh, we are still Romans. We want to be known by that. And you're going to see that kind of, 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 of ethnocentrism that, that we, this is, we want to be the best Romans that we can be to impress the Roman Empire and the emperor the, particularly, and that, that we are his subjects, that we want to be one of the high cities of the empire, and we want Caesar to know that. And so they arrive in the city, and we find that, verse 13, we have a sudden and dramatic break. It says, on the Sabbath day, we went, and that's the end of the line in my Bible, the next line, not sentence, but line, it says that the next thing you would expect to hear is we went to the synagogue. But that's not on the next line, is it? We went out of the city. You see their, their pattern, and they're going to revisit the pattern, by the way, when they move on down uh, into other regions of Greece. Um, but their pattern has always been to go to the synagogue. They would go to the synagogue, they start off with the Jews with the devout Gentiles who had either converted to Judaism or friendly towards Judaism or standing outside the synagogue listening. And so you have, this is their pattern. They would go into the community and they would immediately, on the Sabbath day, head to the synagogue because there there's an audience. Remember, we're talking about a, a Pharisee. We've lost the priest, the Levite. Silas is there, though, from Jerusalem. He's a Jerusalemite. Um, and we have some information on him. So we have these men from Jerusalem trained and uh, could arrive in a synagogue with some uh, level of uh, credibility there. We find, though, that they come to Philippi and on the Sabbath they don't go to the synagogue. Because there is none. To establish a synagogue, you need a certain number of Jewish men. 
And without that number of Jewish men, you cannot establish a synagogue in any community. And you have to maintain that number of Jewish men uh, to maintain your synagogue. And so the synagogue here in Albuquerque requires a certain number of Jewish men to maintain that, and each synagogue does. And Rio Rancho and each one of them has to maintain a certain number of, of Jewish men, and those are generally over the age of 40, um, that they are uh, typically are expected to be of that age to establish um, a synagogue. So we come, and there is no synagogue in Philippi. We're going to talk a little bit about why that is here in a minute. Um, and it has to do with uh, the reaction to Paul and Silas in the marketplace. But we find that uh, they go out and they go, but they have heard about a place of prayer. Remember that Timothy has been circumcised, and so he's ready to minister as well into the the Jewish community. Um, But there is none here in Philippi. And this might account for why this wasn't on the top of Paul's list of places to go. Maybe it was on the very bottom of his list. Because there isn't a very large Jewish community there to start with. These are the people that I can have immediate credibility with, I can have immediate audience with, and I can draw then out of the people of Israel first, and then the devout ones, the the devout Gentiles who have already been influenced by the men of Israel, the Jewish men that are in their community, and, and then we can just go from there into all the Gentiles. This has been his strategy well, now God is calling him to a very different kind of ministry that seems to go against this strategy. And perhaps that is the reason he avoided Philippi. Well, there just aren't any. There isn't a synagogue there. Why would I go into Greece? There's very few synagogues over there. Um, there's actually more synagogues in Italy than there are in Greece. There certainly are more up in the northern regions of Asia. He's familiar with those. And it would fit his style of ministry. But instead, God calls him out of his comfort zone to a place where there is no synagogue. Well, what do you do when you get there? So he's still going to recognize that just because there's not a synagogue doesn't mean there's not a Jewish community there. And so he hears on the Sabbath day that there's a group of people that go out and pray by the riverside. Um, He heads out that Sabbath day out of the city of the riverside. um, Very... Uh, evident that the city didn't want the Jews inside doing their worship. And that's going to play out here in a little bit. It says that the uh, prayer was customarily made. So they did go where Jews did congregate. Israelites did congregate there. And it says, we sat down and spoke to the women who met. And that's to tell you about everything you need to know. It's really hard to have a synagogue when your Jewish community is largely all women. It says the women met there because there were no men. Now, these could have been women who um, were widows um, of, of uh, Israelite men. They could have been Jewish women who had uh, married into the Gentile community. That is possible. Less likely, though. Um, but we seem to see a evidence that there was a strong anti-Israelite attitude within the city that really drove many out. But we come across these women who recognized they need to leave the city. They were going to continue in prayer to Jehovah, uh, to the God of Israel. They did so by the riverside. And Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke sit down and Share Christ with them. They sit down, they talk with them, uh, they engage with these gals. And by verse 14, um, Lydia responds. A certain woman named Lydia heard. She was a seller of purple. We're going to give a little information about from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Amongst the women there sitting there, one uh, listened. She heard it. She recognized this truth and she was going to respond. And, and she, uh, God responded to that. And we find this working of the divine and the human to directing one soul to Christ 
Out of that then, it says that her household was receptive to the message as she brought in uh, these four men into her household. And because she is recognized as a, as a pretty successful businesswoman, we're not talking about uh, a small single house or probably a, an entire compound um, where she would have more than just children. Uh, and this is important for Lydia because we don't know that she had children. But we do know she had a household. And as a, a successful businesswoman, um, she would certainly have servants of her own, uh, perhaps extended family members, but she brings them in and, and receives them. And she says, <laughs> perhaps the same week, the same day, perhaps later, um, her statement was, um, please come and, uh, to my house, stay at my house. Uh, the evidence is that this is probably a little bit later on. Um, she's already been baptized. Uh, those that she brought these four men to also heard the word. They were baptized. All these who believed. And uh, in, within a short period of time, uh, Lydia is recognizing that these men, uh, she has resources these men could use. I want all of my resources available for the work of God. And this is a powerful testimony that really has gone all the way back into the Gospels. And really, if, to be honest, all the way into the Old Testament. We have focused upon the masculinity of, of both Judaism and Christianity. And some of our culture have, have castigated us for it, um, that, you, that we are somehow responsible Christianity and Judaism for the subjugation of women. Um, but the fact is, wherever Judaism and Christianity have gone, the, the role of women in society is always elevated. Never gone down. If we look back, even in Christ's ministry, um, we often wonder, how did they get along? I mean, I know he could make turn five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed thousands. Um, but how did they just get along? And Luke tells us that the women who were following after him too. We know there are 12 disciples. There was more than that. Actually, we know there was at least 14 because two more are ready to replace Judas Iscariot. Um, and so we have this number following him, but among them were the women. And one of the things Luke says is that they used their material resources to support Christ and his disciples. Very powerful testimony. That when the fishermen leave their nets, where's they going to be their source of income for the next three years? And Luke shares that it came from these women that were also following Christ that took care of their needs materially and financially uh, and, and cared for them. We find consistently uh, this opportunities of using resources that are available to the ministry, regardless of male or female. You have resources available to you, and Lydia recognized that she wasn't qualified to do a lot of things uh, in the church, um, but she, was, she had these resources, and she was going to make them available. Maybe she couldn't preach or teach, but she had these resources, and they are going to be available to God's people. And it reminds you of a gal in the Old Testament that uh, said, I can't do much, but this old prophet keeps walking by and uh, convinces her husband, let's just build a room on the roof for him. The next time he comes by, we'll have a place for him to stay. And of course, the rest of the story is the prophet then says in response to her giving of all her resources, this is a childless woman says, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. And so it is. You can't outgive God. You provide this, God blesses you with that. Of course, if you know the whole story, the, that was tested a little bit in her life with the child's death that was brought back to life. So we have this record really throughout the scriptures that you will not find in 
in any of the writings of other religions. You just won't find it. The, the uh, place and the role and the very valuable uh, ministry that women have historically done both in Judaism and in Christianity. And their place has been elevated significantly as a result. And so Lydia becomes one of those examples. A virtuous woman in Proverbs 31 is described as doing quite a bit of business in the community. Buying and selling of property, caring for uh, harvests and servants. And we come in and we see Lydia and her response is, and by it's interesting, she begged us. She wasn't begrudging us. She was having to really push herself onto the disciples, or Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke. Please, if I've been faithful to the Lord, whether it's been a week or two weeks or a month, however long that's been, come to my house and stay. She persuaded this. So she is going to open up her home. This is the resource she has. And, and her resources to care for them physically as they participate in the spiritual ministry and the, the relief that it gives them from these other mundane things of keeping themselves alive. Remember, Paul typically went and made tents. Um, he participated in an occupation while he was doing all of this uh, to support him and the other men. And this allowed him some liberty now where he, that wasn't as pressing on him to do that. Um, he could bring himself under the care of Lydia and her household and was able to engage in the ministry that much more. And we come to verse 16 and we find him involved. And they come up against a demon. They come up against a demon-possessed girl. And we are instructed in something that uh, contradicts a supposedly wise thing um, in the marketplace, and that is um, when the market comes to it and says, well, um, all advertisement is good advertisement. And that's not how the people of God function. That's just not true. We come to this gal following them around. Kind of leading the way. Crying out loudly. And everyone apparently knew who this gal was. Recognized her, her ability to divinate. That is to foretell the future somewhat. Um, and they recognized her, um, her role um, they were making use of it. Uh, several in the city were her masters were gaining income from it, and that was uh, how they had come into great wealth and power. And uh, this gal uh, leaves off from that activity and engages herself in being the trumpet going in front of the servants of God. You might say, well, what she's saying is absolutely true. That is also true. She is speaking the truth. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. There is no doubt that they were servants, that God is the Most High God, and that it was their purpose to describe to men how to be saved. So what was the problem? What's the problem? With agents in the world... Introducing us to a community. <laughs> the problem is one of association. Not just the fact that Paul was annoyed by it. Um, you wonder how long he let that go on before he realized this is no help. Because what are we now associating the work of these men with? We are associating it with the work of the demonics. And to much, 
consternation, I think our churches are doing the same things. We are jumping on the worldly bandwagons and allowing them to do our work for us and thinking that somehow it is a benefit to the church, to our message. And I would challenge you, based upon the principle of this gal, that that is simply not the case. And that takes many different forms. That somehow we are going to grab on to something going on in the world and that we are going to use it as the uh, mechanism by which we're going to bring people the gospel. Well, I don't want to use Hollywood's movies as the mechanism to bring the gospel to people. That is not my interest whatsoever. And it frankly annoys me. As much as it annoys Paul, <laughs> it annoys me that we bring people in the church to show movies. That we have this philosophy that somehow going to church is supposed to be fun. Because after all, is there anything worthwhile entertaining? And I'm convinced that's what destroys most marriages is because it's not fun anymore. Well, i got to tell you something. Um, reality isn't fun. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of sweat. It's a lot of tears. But it's real. We've been wrapped up in fantasy thanks to being engulfed by media and entertainment almost 24-7. And we have projected this into our lives, seeing that somehow we should have all of this going on. We should have all the romance. We should have all the, the experiences. We should have all the excitement. Um, we should have all the fun. And we have brought that into the church and we have sought to use that mechanism of the world to reach people. And it doesn't. Can there be truth derived from those? Yes. Okay? I, I've watched Christian movies and, and yes, they do have the gospel in them and the truth is there. But their fundamental philosophy is one that we're going to reach people through entertainment. There's nothing entertaining about the fact that sinners are on their way to hell. There's nothing entertaining about that. Confronting people with the fact that they are dirty, rotten sinners and offense to God. There's nothing entertaining about that. Would you agree? You cannot bring the gospel through entertainment. It is, in its fundamental nature... Uh, I'm going to say something that you're going to take. Demonic. Why? It is 100% distracting from the truths that we need to consider. We studied the Old Testament prophet that shouted out everywhere he went, Consider your ways. What does that mean? You've got to think. You've got to dwell on them. You have to give some thoughtfulness. And the one thing entertainment doesn't allow us to do is have thoughtfulness. To consider. And so for Paul, this was not an advantage having this gal precede them everywhere they go, declaring who they were and why they were there. They did not want to be associated with what she represented, nor was it beneficial for their work. Um, it was best for them to engage people by the movement of the Spirit of God, not by the introduction by demons. We dare not employ that which is demonic and thinking that we can, we can, <laughs> we consider that we can justify it because somewhere in the midst of all that there is the truth being spoken. The means matters. The way we do it matters, not just what we are communicating. And I will not take the music of the world and bring it in and think I can transfer the message of Christ to the music of the world. I cannot use those mechanisms. Can I justify it? Does this sound good? To have someone walking ahead of you, opening the doors... 
Um, at first it sounds good, but then you start to realize this is not really how God intended that ministry to happen. And what are demons? They are opposed to God. And so the demon recognized that by doing this, he could injure, not aid, the work of these four men. That should tell you something right away. So let's go back to our modern example. Don't you love it when Hollywood gets a hold of a Bible story to put to film? There have been a few of them, right? Most out of the Old Testament, but even some out of the New Testament. Don't you love it when Hollywood gets a hold of those? Don't they really help the gospel? Do they? We've had several flood movies come out. And they're disastrous. Several Exodus movies. And none of them aided us in getting to know God, nor in communicating our message to our world. Factual errors, huge theological misrepresentations and lies, all for entertainment. Paul recognized that he could not permit them to set the pace for his ministry. And I want you to see the contrast between what was going on back there in chapter 16, uh, verses 6 through 10, where they were running up against walls waiting for the Spirit's direction, the Spirit finally coming, and now they're led by the Spirit into Macedonia. They made that determination. Um, they concluded that the Lord had called them to preach the gospel there. They had, they had recognized this as, as a directive from God, but they just as easily could recognize that there is no way this entity is aiding our ministry for them, by their nature, are against the ministry of God. And that's annoying. That, that frankly, is annoying. And we should be annoyed every time the world comes in and thinks they're going to do our job for us. Showing people video has no comparison to sharing Christ from your testimony to them. Mouth, face to face, from your mouth to their ears. No comparison. Are videos enthralling? Can they have an effect? Certainly. But they are not comparable. They are no certain replacement. And so here, out goes the gal. Here are servants of the Most High God. They've come to tell us the way of salvation. Now, if you're walking down there in this very, very Roman city who is trying desperately to be the favorite jewel of Rome, what are you going to do as a good citizen of that city when you're confronted with a demonic woman yelling that out ahead of them? Well, let's go see what she have to say. No. Let's avoid them. That's the response. Paul recognizes it, and I'm sure he wasn't annoyed just by the noise of her, but just by her voice, but certainly by its results. It says in verse 18 that, that and by the way, the word that's translated annoyed is, is a very strong one, that this just oppressed his spirit. It just, it, it produced not just anger, but, but this, this oppression upon him. He was distressed, some versions have. Um, that it just wore against him all the time. That this isn't right. This isn't beneficial. This, it's not just, you know, I don't like this gal's voice. It wasn't that. Um, it was something much more substantial. You have the great contrast between these two women. Isn't that excellent? You have a great contrast. We have Lydia, who recognizes 
I'm not here to do a man's job. I'm here to support the ministry of the resources that God has given me in the way I can. And now you have this little girl out there, and she's going to do their job for them. Lydia, the godly woman, isn't out there trying to supplant and do the man's job for them. She's going to use her resources to support them doing their work. Does that tell you something, gals, about the powerful role you have both in your home and in our church? Pour out your resources to support the men to do their job, which is to lead. Here we have a gal who says, I'm going to take the lead. And let me share with you, in churches where that is the case, it is demonic because it's not of God. Because God said that they shouldn't raise their voice. Certainly shouldn't have authority over the men. And so, there's going to be a response. Paul is fed up with this. This is wrong. We got this little girl out there. We got the demon involved. We got, this is not right at all. There's nothing right about this scenario. And so, he's going to address it. Turns and said to the, the spirit, that is the evil spirit, the demon, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. He came out that very hour. He had no choice. Came out that very hour. Boom! This gal is released. Relieved of this influence in her life. We find that she wasn't doing this really of her own accord, but by the, the directive of this demon. And then we see the results of that. That this gal wasn't really treasured for herself, but rather for what profit she could bring to those within the city. They saw that they lost this profit. They recognized this as the result of Paul and Silas. It's interesting that Timothy and Luke uh, somehow avoided their scrutiny, um, and they didn't get thrown in jail. Just the two of them did. Uh, and they get drug into the authorities. And I want you to hear their accusation. They don't give the accusation about we've lost money, we have, they have destroyed our means of making money and profiteering off of this gal's infirmity, but rather they bring them for these men being Jews. And we all know what they're like. We've had to deal with them before, we've gotten them out of this city before, and we're going to do it again. Might give a little reflection upon why there was no synagogue in Philippi wasn't because they didn't know anything about Jews, because they had already dealt with them before. These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. And you see again that centrality. They recognize that this is a city that wants above all things to be Roman. And so what is the simplest way to discount this message? It is anti-Roman. These people are teaching us things that are against our culture, that are against our country, that are against our political position. They are teaching things that are not right for us Romans to legally do, to rightfully do. That if we really want to be the premier city of Rome, second only to Rome, and that really was Philippi's objective. They wanted to be little Rome. If we're going to achieve this identity within our country as the premier place for Romans to hang out, to live, to dwell, for Caesar, then we can't tolerate these people and what they're teaching. Now notice, this is not truly their motive. Their true motive is that they've lost their means of, a, of taking advantage of the, of the business community. Um, they've been using her to outsmart all their competitors. They don't mention any of that. And by the way, um, none of that is mentioned often in our politics and in our judicial system, um, in the legislature. But the fact is, I think we all realize that why we pass, we, we can't pass important moral laws in the 60-day session, but we have no problem finding the time to pass all the gambling laws, do we? Somehow, 
Our state legislature is always able to address the gambling issues, but never some of the moral issues they're confronted with. Those are all tabled. Can't be done in 60 days. You ever wonder why? Money. Guess who's throwing money at our legislature? Or where they're going to think they're going to get money from? Money is still the underlying motive, but you're not going to hear about that in the public sector. And so in the public sector, what is it saying? This is un-American. Oh, did I just bring that? I'm sorry. This is un-Roman. Brethren, what has today become American is offensive to God. That we can't call sin, sin. That no one has personal responsibility. That uh, everyone does what is right in their own eyes, which is the highest offense of Israel ever committed against God, was that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that was the end. That was the last thing. God says, you're done. I'm going to destroy you. You're going into exile. And yet that is the spirit of our culture. And let me share with you that we are un-American. And proud of it. (laughs) But this is the accusation that's going to come across. They're teaching customs that aren't lawful for us. We can't accept them. We can't observe them because... We are Romans. We belong to Rome. And this is going to violate our Romanness if we accept these guys. Now, Paul um, isn't allowed to speak on this occasion. His, his opportunity to speak has been taken away from him. Um, and, but he's going to use it the next day. I want to jump ahead a little bit because of its application to this aspect of this accusation. The next day, after they've been beaten, after they've been thrown in jail, verse 35 says, the next day the magistrate sent the officers saying, let these men go. Keep the prisons excited. Hey, they're going to let you go. He'd already accepted Christ as Savior. We'll get to that next week. But look at um, verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. Do you know what how big a black mark this is on them as a city if this gets to Caesar? This is cause for them to be censured by Rome as a city. They have done the highest unlawful act that any community can do against any Roman citizen, against Rome itself. Any abuse of a Roman citizen without a right judicial act is one of the highest illegal things you can do. And it would bring Roman armies to your door. It would mean your magistrates would be strung up. Because they aren't truly Roman citizens, some of them. They are seeking to become Romans. These guys are Roman citizens. Not because they paid for it, we find out later in the book of Acts, but he was born. And this is one of the wonders of God's selection of Paul. Uh, This is a born citizen of the Roman Empire. He said, you guys all worried about being Romans? I'm a Roman. I was born here. I was raised in a Roman household. I am a citizen. I have what you want to attain. And I'm here to tell you there's nothing un-Roman about what I'm teaching because I'm a Roman and I hold to it. But the accusation stood for the day, stood for that hour, because they didn't inquire, they didn't investigate, because they heard what they wanted to hear. These people are Jews. They're trying to get us to not be Romans. They're going to injure our Roman cause um, by their teaching. And so we're going to, and it says the multitude, oh, there's the gang. Uh, There's always the, the... Mob. Always has to be the mob. And so the mob raises up. Um, they, they beat these guys. Throw them into jail. By the way, none of this, none of this activity is a closed door. 
Remember the closed doors from last week? We talked about earlier. None of this represents closed doors. In fact, it's going to open a door. And an entire household again is going to come to know Christ. We have the Jewish household of Lydia going to come to know Christ. And before the end of this event, the next day, in the middle of the night, we're going to have a Gentile, fully Roman Gentile, coming to know Christ in his household. This is not a closed door. Do not think that every time you are opposed by the world, that that represents a closed door to ministry. The world is not going to determine your open and closed doors of ministry. Opposition from the world is to be expected. And maybe opposition from the world is the evidence that the door is open for you to minister. Because if you weren't being effective, they wouldn't be opposing you. So get a different concept in your mind of what was going on in the verses 7 and 8 when they tried to go here and tried to go there and the Spirit wouldn't let them. That wasn't because they ran into circumstances of opposition um, by the enemy, by, by the world, by those that opposed Christ, by the demons. They were going to confront demons. They were going to confront um, the, the philosophy of the city of Philippi and, and the accusations that were false against them, against their Roman ways. Um, None of that was opposition that was closed doors. Those didn't represent closed doors at all. Please get that concept out of your way, that if you become uncomfortable, if you become attacked, that that's a closed door. Wrong. That's Satan. That's the demonic. That's the world. We don't follow them to figure out where we should be ministering and how we should be ministering. No more than the positive statement that, here, let me help you do your work. I'm going to tell everybody ahead of you who you are. You know, one of the hardest things for me to minister to people is when they find out I'm a pastor. That's why I don't usually tell people. You tell them all the time, this is my pastor. And they're like, okay, well, I've got to be a pastor. You know. <laughs> can't just be a guy to share them with the gospel. Now I have to be the pastor. Which means they're just going to expect it out of me and just kind of blow it off. Believe it or not, that's how the world largely responds. So, in a positive way, it was that opposition of the gal trying to do the work for them and, and, and causing the problems that she caused, that was demonic, that wasn't a closed door. Being arrested and dragged around by a mob and being beaten and thrown in prison, that wasn't a closed door, folks. <laughs> That's still opportunity to minister. God doesn't want us out of here quite yet. They're going to leave pretty soon, but they're not going to go very far. Opposition from the world does not equal a closed-door ministry. Don't think that's what was going on in chapter 7 and 8. That was the Spirit working that they just couldn't get anywhere, not by Satan's actions, but by the Spirit's actions. And we have to have that discernment. And so here they are. They're running up against this concept that somehow you cannot um, be a Christian Roman. And Paul says, oh yes, you can. But you have to have the priorities there. That I'm, I'm willing to suffer for Christ's name. I could have used my Roman citizenship yesterday. In fact, he's going to use it later on in the book of Acts to avoid a beating. There are many times that he's going to suffer and, and not say anything. But on this occasion, he recognizes that these people are so concerned about being Roman. Let me just throw one out at them. I'm a Roman, and you treated me like this. And all I have to do is send word to the Roman consulate that I was beaten and imprisoned by a bunch of people in Philippi and I'm a Roman citizen, I wasn't given a fair trial. They followed the mob. And boom, Philippi is off the favored list. And a Roman garrison is going to be occupied and some magistrates are going to go down. That's all he had to do. And that threat was real. 
But what he was really trying to communicate to them is that you listen to people who falsely accused us of being anti-Roman. You didn't explore it. You didn't consider it. You didn't investigate it. And you didn't really hear from us at all. What we really want in society is not a lack of opposition, but just a fair hearing. Let's have a fair hearing. And one of the things your lives out in the world should give you is some credibility for a fair hearing. Well, you work hard. You're a nice neighbor. You're a good friend. You're a nice classmate. You're a whatever. And you have some credibility that has been established. And we use that really not to applaud ourselves, pat ourselves on the back, or to strut around, but we should be using that as, well, based upon that view of us, give us a fair hearing. Let me tell you about my relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me share with you, if you think that I'm all these good things, then let me employ those. And here, Paul's using his Romanness. I'm a Roman. You didn't give me a fair hearing. You have no idea what I'm about. You didn't even know my citizenship. Well, now they know, and I think he's going to have an opportunity to talk. And he has, he's going to leave the city because they asked him to. Um, he doesn't do it right away, interesting enough. Um, they uh, entered the house. They saw everybody and spent some time encouraging them, which is preaching and teaching, and then they departed on their own good time. They just wanted a fair hearing. Brethren, that's all we really ask of the world. We don't ask them not to mistreat us, but at least mistreat us out of your knowledge of what we really stand for instead of what you think we do. Don't judge me by what the telepreachers are saying. Don't judge me by what the mega churches are doing. You know me. And if I have any cred here at the skate park because they've been there for years and, and they've been engaged, I should be, just give me a fair hearing. Listen to what I have to say. The only time I really spend any time at the skate park down there one time I went down there and the kids all wanted our guys to guard their stuff while they went and did something else. I said, why would you ask them to do that? Oh, they won't steal it. I said, oh, you trust them? Yeah. I said, then why don't you listen to what they tell you? They built a credibility. That should permit them a fair hearing. That's really what it means to live the Christian life before the world is we're building credibility before them that we might get a fair hearing. And Paul here is simply using his citizenship not to guard himself from opposition because he's willing to suffer for Christ's namesake, but he's really doing it to say, hey, you listen to these people make these claims about me and you never asked me. And now I'm going to establish myself in your eyes really quickly. I'm a Roman citizen and you did wrong to me. Now, who's indebted to who? They're in debt to him big time. And he knows it. And they know. And now he's going to use that to gain that hearing. And I just want to challenge you to recognize the Spirit's lead, but don't confuse that with the world's opposition, nor do you depend upon the world's opportunities to share Christ. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want the Spirit to direct those. We want our lives to be the means by which we build enough uh, credibility for a valid audience to hear me out. Let me share with you the gospel. Not based because this loudmouth said something about me, but because of what you know about me. Not because of what you've heard about Christians or about Baptists or whatever, but because you know me. Let me share with you about Christ. And this is what Paul Silas asked for and received. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you.
for your love for us. And we pray again that we might be about your work. Lord, we uh, see these same things happening around us where we are letting the world lead us in ministry instead of you and how we do it and, and the opportunities to do it. We are also being misconstrued many times and labeled with all the baggage that comes with those. And Lord, help us to overcome those and not to just walk away or ignore that, but recognize it as opportunities. Even if it involves suffering, for your name's sake, that we might have a hearing in the audience of these who count themselves your enemy. And Lord, help us to see past the words of men into their motives. That we might, by your Spirit, know whom to walk away from and whom to press the gospel upon. Lord, we pray for wisdom. That we might respond to the open doors not because they're comfortable or happy, but because they're necessary and led by you and may even involve our suffering. Lord, make us your ministers by your power to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.